Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king of the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is to this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in in the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges, who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept this disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is to this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and a city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, 
but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. My God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have nothing to add to such a prayer, but only that you would enable us to rightly understand this word, to imbibe it, to observe it, and indeed to emulate it in our hearts and minds as well as on our lips. And how we pray that you might enliven us, that we would be prepared to pray as Daniel did. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We come now to the first half of Daniel, chapter 9. And this contains, of course, one of the most powerful prayers in all of Scripture ever composed by the hand of man. Of course, it was composed by the Holy Spirit. Now, the context is given to us very straightforwardly in the first verse where it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Assyrius, the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. It is, of course, an amazing thing. This, this man here lived uh, a long time, and in the providence of God, as a very, as a very young man, he was taken in this captivity, as God brought about it, he had lived before this kept captivity for a brief time. And then as part of that, he was brought into Babylon and had lived in this 70 years in Babylon there or thereabouts. And so he knew, though, from the books, from, in fact, he specifies it, doesn't it, through, the, through Jeremiah the prophet, as we see in the completeness and totality of the Word of God, that this part of the inspired Word of God is referring to another part of the inspired Word of God, he knows that the 70 years are up. Now he then turns his face to prayer. And there are aspects of this prayer that are unique to Daniel in his situation. But in the sermon tonight, I want us to look at some aspects that I think are universally applicable to all of God's people. And in this, this is a very, very simple sermon. I don't make any apology for it. There's nothing earth-shattering about it. There's nothing new that you're going to hear. But so many times, the problem with us is that we grow forgetful and that the work of the ministry is actually one of reminder and refreshing of things that we ought to know and once did. And so if you know these things about prayer, then be reminded of them. If you don't, then learn them for the first time. So the simple title is Daniel's Prayer, and with these four points, Preparation, Adoration, Confession, and Request, P-A-C-R, Preparation, Adoration, Confession, and Request. Well, we begin with preparation. It says in verse 2, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. In verse 3, then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting sackcloth in ashes and ashes. 
Now, I think we take this expression, set my face, to convey the sense of being intentional about something, intentionality, and also a preparation. This is what Daniel is setting to do. He wants to do this. He wants to speak to the Lord. And, and he as a courtier, he who, who works in royal courts, know that you just don't walk in casually, but you prepare yourself in order to do this supplication. You prepare yourself to go before the king and to make your request known to him. In fact, if you were to carry, you, you know that in the uh, chronology, that there would be another man who would prepare himself, the cupbearer of the king, Nehemiah, to go speak to him. And he prepared himself before he did it. And so it was with Queen Esther, by the way. Well, anyway, so he prepares himself for this work. Now, the question is how? Well, we notice that he had prepared himself first with reading the word of God. That is the most basic and in some way the most important, the most crucial aspect of the whole thing because that's how he knew about the promises. That's how he knew that the 70 years were coming to an end. That's how he know, That's what gives him the prompting. It gives him the substance of his prayer. It gives him the ability to know the God to which he's speaking and the basis by which he comes to him. The whole thing is dependent on the word of God in the first place. And we must always fuel our prayers by the word of God. And sometimes it's hard to know which one to do first, which one gets priority. Whether we uh, pray to understand or we read in order to pray as we should. But the things always work together. You do not have one without the other. They go together. So he prepared by reading the word of God. And then he also prepared by fasting. Now fasting has a bad name because the Pharisees made such a big deal about it. But let's just remind ourselves very specifically what Jesus says about it in the Sermon on the Mount and what he doesn't say. You know, some people make the point that when Jesus corrects the Pharisees in their wrong, legalistic, pharisaical, false idea of the Sabbath, then he must have done away with the Sabbath. No, he hasn't. Well, he didn't do away with with fasting either. He simply corrects some misunderstandings. And he says in in Matthew 6, 16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So not only does he expect his followers, his disciples, us, to fast, he actually tells us that we're going to be rewarded by his Father. He promises a reward. He who sees you fasting secretly will reward you openly. That's pretty clear, isn't it? This is no abrogation. This is a correction that actually comes with a greater promise than what they had before. There was no, in fact, if you look through the Old Testament, I don't think you have such clear and unambiguous promises of reward that comes to fasting. Rather, it's new that Jesus gives us this. So he expects us to fast. And in particular, it is an excellent preparation for prayer. There, again, something that goes with prayer so wonderfully well is fasting. It gives us the right frame of mind as we come to those, even in our weakness. We, particularly in our weakness, and our bodily weakness of, of, of not eating as much, we come to him in dependence. As those who spend a lot of time sometimes on preparing and eating a food of the greater time, even of hunger pains that sort of prompt us to be prayerful before our God. And all these things, it, it works very well.
And also, in his case, with sackcloth and ashes. Now, we this we'll speak about this. Um, we understand what is the sackcloth and ashes? It's the attire of mourning, as if the loss of a loved one. That's what they, they did. That's the attire that they had for mourning. And we understand how easily such the external aspects are ritualized. And that's the problem, I think. I think that they actually, the, the people, the Pharisees in Jesus' day did that. They copied the superficial aspects and, and not the deeper aspects of these things. And so they said, well, we'll just throw on, we'll, we'll make ourselves disheveled. And, and everyone will know that we're fasting because that's all we really care about is that our religious friends see that we're just as religious, if not more so, than they are in our constant, continual fasting. Well, so we're not going to emphasize that external element. We're going to speak of what it points to, which is mourning. When people are mourning for a loved one, they don't normally throw themselves into becoming beauty queens or something like that. They... They don't care so much about their external appearance as they mourn for the one that they love. Now the question is, if this is mourning, if this is what they're doing, if this is about grief, what did Daniel have to mourn about? He hadn't lost a loved one, had he? Well, the answer is sin. That's what he was mourning about. That's what this attire was about. That's what this sackcloth and ashes, it was about his sin and the sin of his people. He was grieving about these things. Now, in some sense, this is so foreign to us, we we hardly know what to do with it. But God's people, when God stirs him up to pray that kind of prayer, he gives them an overwhelming sense of the sinfulness of sin, of just how guilty they are, and just how terrible a thing it is. And in times of the church's... uh, I don't know, levity and in the church's uh, uh, bad times, such a, a sense of sin is unknown. One of the things that we find naturally in the history of revival is that uh, of the many things that kind of come and go, of the things that could be a sign of revival and maybe not, of all those things, one thing that particularly is absolutely con- uh, constant is an incredible abiding sense and mourning over sin that God's people had such that in other times it hadn't been seen, and when the revival went, they never saw it again. This is the kind of thing that he was mourning about, his sin. The sin of himself, the sin of the church, his people, and also, I would say, with the state of the church. He is mourning that. It's a, it's the, the church of his day was in a state of reproach and desolation, and Daniel cares very deeply about it. And my simple question is, do we? How... how uh, concerned are we? How cognizant are we of the state of the church in this land? And how much do we care? Is this something that we would mourn about? Or we say, well, I'm okay. I don't even know what's going on with the other churches. I, I don't have a clue. And I don't really care. Or do we say that their problems are our problems? Or do we say that the church is in a state of great reproach in this land? And we are in a terrible condition. And it is something that burdens us and gives us great sadness and something we grieve over. Well, having done these things, having armed himself with the word of God, having prepared himself with fasting, having prepared himself with an attitude of mourning over sin in the state of Zion, Daniel was ready to pray. So after preparation, then secondly, we have adoration. Now let me just say, you know that we use the acrostic acts, A-C-T-S, And in this sermon, we just, having slightly different, 
in that the aspect of thankfulness in this situation is not as apparent, but the preparation certainly is, and we should think about that. But the second one is absolutely in common, and it is by far the most consistent aspect of this. I don't know of a a single biblical example of prayer anywhere that does not have adoration. It may not have thanksgiving as much. It may, in some cases, not have confession as much. Sometimes there's prayers that don't really have much of a request. But they always, always, always have adoration of the living God. And so we read, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We're here to worship God. We are on this planet. We live in this universe. We have our being in order to give God the glory. And so in every circumstance, every time that we come to him, it is an opportunity to to worship and adore the living God. It is an opportunity to think about and, and meditate upon and repeat out to him in worship just how great he is. Is he great? Is he so wonderful? Then we should extol him. You know, it's not something that's beyond the, the wit of man to be able to do that. I hear myself, I hear you, I hear my children, my family all the time. When something you come across as something intriguing and interesting, a book, um, an, a game, I don't know, whatever it might be, people are full of this, aren't you? You think about all the elements of it and how wonderful it is. And they just come off your, t- your, your lips and you say, isn't this, this great? And you want to share it. And it just, you naturally speak of such things. This is our God. He is much greater than these things. And you see, by the way, just how necessary it is to prepare us in the word of God. Because if you come to prayer and you, you, you say, oh, I know he's great, but I can't quite remember why he's great. That's a problem. That's why we have to prepare ourselves in his word. He tells us, this is a big, big book, and it's all about how great and wonderful and awesome is our God. And so we should be full of that when we come to him in prayer, and we repeat it back to him. And there is no urgency, no situation that is too urgent, but that we take every opportunity to praise his holy name. And of course, beyond the general idea of worship and adoration, the particular choices that we make in our prayer set the scene for the particular prayer. We pray with the end in mind. What is it that we're looking for in this prayer? Well, then we look at the aspect of God because God is great. And God has many titles. He has many names. He has many attributes. And he has done many great works. And which of these things apply to our situation? What about God's character? What about God's promises apply? Those are the things that we particularly draw his attention and ours to. It sets the scene for our prayer. What sort of God are we speaking to? Is he really able and willing to do the thing that we have in mind? Well, there must be some title. There must be some attribute. There must be some name of God that specifically relates to that. And that's the thing that we speak of. And if you say, again... That's probably easy for you with all your degrees in theology. No, it's not really. Because we are so forgetful. And that is why we must remind ourselves of these things. Make yourself a list. Make yourself a little shorthand list of the the attributes of God or the titles of God that that relate to particular elements of prayer. What What is your problem? Find an attribute of God that relates to it. And so he begins, as I say... Some with the appellation, great and awesome God. 
Now, Daniel knows about those who think they're great and awesome. He, he works in this court of the great empire. And so he's all the more discerning, all the more appreciative of the only one who actually is so awesome, so awe-inspiring that is the true and living God. And he is a God that is so great, he can lift up whole empires and bring them down. He can bring the nation, his own nation, into captivity, and he can set them free because he is this great and awesome God who has sovereignty over all things and all peoples and all kingdoms in this world. And he calls out to this God and to none other. Now beyond that, of course, so he's able. This God is able. Because he's so great and awesome, he's able. The question is, is he willing And that's when he brings up the fact that he's a covenant-keeping God. How do we relate to such a God? How do we relate to such an awesome God only as people of his covenant? Only as his covenant people? Because apart from that, we have no basis. We have no standing. We have no relationship with this great and awesome God. We are just objects of his wrath. But if we are in his covenant, then that's different. Because you see, one of the attributes of God is he is a covenant-keeping God. We may be faithless, but he is faithful. And he will keep his covenant with his people. Now, of course, we understand that there's an element of the covenant with Israel that is double-edged. And Daniel does not shy away from that. We know that there were great blessings And there are also great cursings that came along. If the people departed, if they worshipped other gods, if they turned away from the living God, then God said eventually he was going to cast them out of the land that he brought them. And so he, he points that out. He says he keeps covenant with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Because obviously the father said not, and for this reason the whole nation was brought under discipline. But even in that, even in that, it does not mean that the covenant has been annulled. It actually means that the covenant is true. And that all the promises that God had made, had made, both in terms of blessing and bringing them into the land and sustaining them, building them up as, as he did, and also then of cursing them, God had proved himself to be utterly true to the promises that he had made to them. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story because it is also a merciful God to whom he's speaking to. A merciful God who had from the beginning set an end point to this discipline. From the very beginning had said it was not going to be forever, but rather for 70 years, the lifespan of a typical man. And how thankful we can be for such mercy. He will not forever cast off his covenant people. We are speaking to a merciful God, and that is why we have hope of being heard. Well, there is preparation, there is adoration. Thirdly, there is confession. And that is the bulk of this prayer, actually. That is the distinguishing feature of this particular prayer. It is a prayer mainly having to do with confession. Now, that's not the point of it, actually. But the bulk of it is taken up with confession. And I'll just read it again, some of it to you. Verse 5, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and judgments. In fact, as we go on, we see that Daniel is, is being creative in the sense of thinking of different ways of saying the same thing. And I think that's good. If we have just a rote way and say, Lord, we have sinned against you, and we quickly move on to something else, is, does that really rightly convey a sense of, of, of deep sorrow for sin? No, we've, we find new ways of expressing that confession, and we, we come from different angles. 
And we, we speak of the different aspects of God's law that we have transgressed, all of the ways in which we have done wickedly, all the ways in which we have rebelled, all the ways that we have departed from precepts and judgments. And that is speaking particularly in this case of the written word of God. They had been given the scripture, they had been given God's law, and they had rebelled against it. But that's not all. That's not as far as it goes. There's more. Verse 6, Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. It wasn't just that God had given them a written law, but rather he had sent his ministers, he'd sent his servants, the prophets, to speak to them. He had contended with them as with a covenant lawsuit. You remember that in in Isaiah, the covenant lawsuit, as he is the covenant God and speaking to his people and saying, you're transgressing, you've turned against it, you need to return or else something terrible is going to happen to you. He contended with them. But did they listen? When God sent in person his representatives, did they listen? No, they didn't listen. In fact, as we heard this morning, he mistreated, the people mistreated these prophets. They persecuted these prophets. They killed many of these prophets. How wicked is that? How awful is that? And Daniel doesn't take any, any, any part off of it. He does not take a discount on this. And neither should we, by the way. And we, as we make our confession, we do not dare take any off the top. We do not spare ourselves, but rather we make it as truly bad as it is in the sight of a holy God. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but as to us, shame of face, as it is to this day. The men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and far off, and all the countries in which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness in which they have committed against you. It is a shame of face. That is the way we relate to God. Some people, and again, in all these things, I do not imagine that I am... A perfect example, but what I mean to say is I have observed perhaps in myself as well as others a, a confession that almost seems proud. It is perfunctory. It is coming from the lips of someone who strikes you, even perhaps again listening to yourself, of one who is not humble, one who is not coming in shame, but almost coming as an exhibition. Now that is not the kind of confession that the Lord wishes. It is the opposite of that little horn. Do you remember him? He exalted himself in his pride. We rather abase ourselves in confession of sin. We abase ourselves in knowledge that, we, that shame belongs to us. It is right, it is appropriate to have an, an attitude of shame for our sin. It should be, it's rightly to be ashamed of. O Lord, to us belongs, verse 8, shame of face to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And this, of course, we, we speak also in terms of our leadership. This corporate dimension, by the way, of the whole prayer is so very corporate. Now, there may be aspects that are particular to Daniel as a leader of the people, but only to a point. Only to a point, because I think that our prayers ought to have this, 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 uh, group, this, uh, corporate element to it. And I think our prayers are very often deficient in that because we're so individualistic. All we care about is ourselves. That's one of our great problems. Why don't we pray like this? Because we don't share Daniel's concern for the church. We don't identify ourselves corporately with God's people. We, we confine our confession to our own sins and not to those around us that we are bound to in the church and in our families. 
but rather we should make. There's no point, by the way, I'd say this. There is no point in which you bear no responsibility whatsoever for the sin of others. At all times, even the smallest child here, yes, smallest child here, your temper tantrums, you know you share in the sin of your parents? They stand before God for how they deal with those things. But in the, as much as you provide an a, 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 a occasion for sin, you share in the, the sin. Your stubbornness may be the occasion of sin. Now, I need not say that parents most obviously share and contribute to the sin of their children by our bad example, by our lack of prayerfulness, by our lack of right instruction in all the other ways. But truly, we are in it together. And certainly as a church. You know, that's one of the things that we say, isn't it? That it is so crucial that people choose a a good church to be part of. Why? Because inevitably, if you go to a bad church, what's going to happen to you? Bad things. You're going to fall into sin because there's going to be, it's going to be filled with bad examples. You won't have good teaching. There won't be, there won't be much prayer. You won't be held to account. There won't be any of those elements which God has told His church to be for you and absolutely you will suffer because of it. Well then, there can, you can be absolutely certain that if somebody sins among us, if somebody falls, you are partly to blame. And therefore, we ought to, as a group, confess our sins, not just ourselves, but for those around us, because we share in them as well. Now, as I say, at no point does Daniel offer any excuse or any extenuating circumstance for himself or any of the people. On the contrary, he points out all the factors that make it all the worse. No extenuating factors, only the things that make it the worse, because that's the way it really is. Before God, and I was, I was just had occasion to remember there are two different kinds of casuistry. Have you heard that word casuistry? Well, it's a fancy word for a very simple thing, which is working through the motivations to see uh, that you have for any particular action to see whether it makes it better or worse. Right? There is Jesuit casuistry, in which the whole idea is to make everything excusable. So a Jesuit was a past and still is a past master in any take any any action you can think of, no matter how wicked objectively that action may be, he will find a way of excusing it and say, Well, did you do it out of love? Did you do it out of consideration for others? Would you have been sad at somebody and so on and so forth? Would it have would it have given your poor grandmother a heart attack to find out about this thing? So it was good that you deceived her, you know, and all the rest of these things casuistry there's another kind though and that's puritan casuistry the puritans went the other direction and every action that they looked at they said now what are the motivations here what are the circumstances that surround this particular act was i really acting out of a pure love to god was i really doing this for that for good reasons or was it for vain glory or was it out of pride or was it out of respect to what other people would see? And on and on and on and on. And rather they come then with a right understanding of themselves. They walk humbly because at every time, even the things that might be considered praiseworthy in the sight of others, they recognized weren't so great in the sight of God. Well, this is just what Daniel was doing. There's no excuse at all. 
Nothing even the slightest. He goes out of his way to point out just how terrible the case was. That's the kind of confession that Daniel has. He even mentions, by the way, the lack of prayer. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. The prayerlessness itself is a sin to be confessed. This is what confession looks like. Preparation, adoration, confession. Fourthly, request. We begin that in verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our death. In fact, we'll go actually one verse before that. In verse 17. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Now, what is the basis? Now, actually, let's stay there. What is it that he is asking the Lord to do? It's almost so, it's one of those things where you could pass by to not even understand that this is the great request that he's making. Because it doesn't seem very specific, but actually it is. What he said is, incline your ear to hear, open your eyes, see the desolations, and make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. That's what he's asking. And you know, nothing else is necessary. Nothing else is needed. If the Lord simply makes his face to shine upon his people, then all is well. All the things that could possibly be desired, it is summed up in making your face to shine upon. That's why in the ironic blessing, the, the, the blessing given to God's people to make the Lord make his face to shine upon you, that is a summation of all blessings. Have we said before, what is hell? Hell is not the absence of God. It is the wrathful presence of God. God showing his face of wrath and anger towards those condemned in hell. And what is heaven? It is being in the presence of his blessedness, of his countenance of blessing. He is making his face to shine upon without any limitation at all of his own people forever. And that is the summation of all blessing. What is it that he's asking Because he hadn't done that. You see, the Lord has, it were, turned his face aside from blessing and rather brought them into judgment. Now say, Lord, make your face to shine upon your people again. That's the request. And he's asking them specifically to listen. Listen. Listen to the cries of the people. They're in great distress. Take a look and see for yourself your land, your temple, your city. It is desolate. Do you not see how it is? It's not that he thinks to himself that God is not omniscient. This is not a technicality that the Lord doesn't know these things. It's that the Lord would be affected by them. That the Lord would receive them in sympathy with the people and would act accordingly. It's just like it was in the first exodus. The Lord was fully aware that the situation that they were in in Egypt but then he listened in a sense of taking heed. He, he cast his eye upon the sorrow of his people and he acted to change it. That's what, the, that's what Daniel is asking the Lord to do. Now, on what basis does he make this request? Very, very, very specifically, it is not on the basis of merit. We do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. 
That's why it's not on the basis of their righteous deeds. They just confess that they have none. But because of your great mercies. That's the thing. They don't deserve it. But thankfully our God is a God of mercy. Do you believe that? I hope you do. God of mercy and grace. And it is on that basis that we come to him. Not on any righteous act that we do. And because of his namesake. There's an attribute in a name, right? One of the attributes of God is his mercy. That is a great basis by which we come and ask these things. Not on our own merit. And also because of his namesake. If it's not on our namesake, definitely not. But on his namesake. 1 Samuel 12, 22, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. He has put his name upon his own people, and, it, and therefore he has now identified himself with us. And that's the basis on which he's been asked. It's for your namesake, your reputation. Now you had, Daniel fully understands, he had to protect his reputation, as it were, by this people that had utterly turned aside and cast him by and trampled on his word, it was for his namesake that they were disciplined and turned out of the land. But now he's saying, for your namesake, having done so, bring them back. Have mercy upon them, that your name might be glorified, that people might not think that, that you are not able to save your people, that people might not think that you're actually like these false gods who are trampled underfoot by the Babylonians, never to rise again, never to be heard of again. No, God's not like that. And for his own namesake, then, the cause, the meritorious cause does not lie in us. It lies in him. For his own namesake, he will build up his people. He will restore the fortunes of Zion. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications for the Lord's sake, his namesake. For your own sake, that's one way of just saying it. For your own sake, Lord, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is Desolate, And that is just what God had promised to do. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It has been the basis of God's wonderful promise that Daniel makes his request. Preparation. Adoration, confession, request. And let me just say, of course, that Daniel's prayer was, in fact, answered. We have every reason to take this as a good model for ourselves. It was answered. And so, and really, there is but one general application, which is to pray like Daniel, to use this good example. But let's think about four things in particular to, to focus our mind in ways that we might emulate this great example I'd say, first of all, we need to study God's word with an eye to prayer. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we, we study God's word for some various reasons, for comfort in times that we're feeling down. Sometimes we study it because we have some theological question or some, we need some practical answer in some way. But I say, in this case, study the word of God with an eye to prayer to gather up ammunition for yourself. As I was saying to someone not so long ago. Of course, the military parallel couldn't be any clearer. Uh, you, you, in, in the eve of any exercise, on the eve of any operation, you see a bunch of 
of, of soldiers, marines, whatever they might be, and, and there they are. They're collecting ammunition. The, the trucks have come. They drop off their crates, and everyone's loading up magazines, and everyone's putting grenades on, and everyone's putting, you know, so forth into the truck. And if it's an aircraft, there they are. We're loading bombs and missiles and, and all the rest of it. Why? Because we expect to use them. We are gathering these things. We're putting them in order. We're, we're nicely doing that. It's not haphazard. We put them all in nice, perfect order, and we make them easy to get to in order that we plan to actually use them. That's the way that we look at this Word of God. Not the only way, but if we want to pray like Daniel, we pray and we we find ammunition here for prayer. We look for names. We look for attributes. We look for promises so that we might fire them as ammunition rounds to heaven in our prayer. We should study the word of God with an eye to prayer. And secondly, we should learn how to fast. I say as one who is so poor at this particular spiritual discipline. I think we as a, as a, a whole generation, we as a whole time in the, the, the church, we are pathetic at this. But I think it to a large extent explains why our prayers are not more powerful. Why we do not see God acting in greater ways. Because we do not have access. We have lost the art. We have lost this discipline of fasting by and large. And I do not mean to say that that no one here fasts. I know that you do. I just mean to say that we don't all, and we don't always, when we should. Now that is not in the slightest to impose. Now incidentally, one of the the powers given to the elders of a local church is to declare special seasons, either of fasting and prayer, or ounce of thanksgiving and prayer. So theoretically that could happen. But here I'm simply reminding you of, of, again, this particular weapon in the arsenal. That our prayers lack the power of Daniel's prayer because we often lack this kind of preparation for it. So we ought to learn how to fast. Thirdly, we ought to learn how to confess. And as I say, this is the great bulk of the prayer. It's something that we should learn. In some sense, now, in some sense, confession comes naturally to the child of God. If God has called you to himself, if through the power of the Holy Spirit, he has made you new. He has given you the second birth. When you come into the presence of the Holy God, that's just going to come to you. You're going to, with, going to have some confession. But can we confess like Daniel? I don't know. I don't think that that really comes naturally to me or to anyone else. I think that we need to study. I think we need to learn how to confess like that. As I say, we, don't, we take it easy on ourselves and those around us. We excuse sin, actually, even in our confession. Now, of course, my corporate confession is going to be a little bit different than our private confession. I understand that. But we need to be specific. That's one of the things that every one of the Puritan guides to prayer will always say, be specific. Our Westminster Larger Catechism says be specific. Don't just be general or a directory for public worship. Don't just be general in our confession that we've sinned against you. Go through the list because it's awful. That's the reason why we don't do it is because it's so awful. We don't want to face up to that again. But that's just the point. You want to be forgiven of these things. You want to make confession for them. You want to have right humility and shame of face for these things. And they ought to be listed by their awful names. Confess these things. We ought to learn how to confess. Indeed, to do that Puritan casuistry. Lord, yes, 
There is nothing terrible in something that if somebody were watching me today would say this man is a wicked sinner. But I know and you know more than that. We know the reasons why these things happen. You know about my pride. You know about my envy. You know about the way in which I care about the opinions of others more than I care about you. You know about my envy. All the rest of those things that could be said, you say them in your confession. And fourthly and finally, we need to learn how to care about Zion. We need to learn how to care about Zion because individualism is a problem. It is pervasive. It is part of the default settings in this time and place. And we must fight against it. How much do we care? That's the question. Do we, do we have any idea? Do we have any sense of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight? When he just says what's so terrible about his situation, he points out all the suffering, and there's so much suffering. And he says, besides the other things which come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? He doesn't accept him, exempt himself from that. He doesn't say that there are some members of some of the churches connected with him that are so insignificant. It doesn't really matter whether they sin or not. Each and every time somebody falls into sin, he feels it deeply. In every occasion when the churches fall into disrepair, to heresy, to, to sin of various kinds, or, or just their, their, their spiritual vitality is gone, he feels these things. He takes it personally. Now, I understand again, he's an apostle. But in what sense are we not connected to the body of, of Christ? Are we saying we're not connected to him? That's not good. Are you saying, I don't feel it because I'm not even part of this body? That's not good. No, we're all part of the one body of Christ. And so if someone is stumbling, if someone's fallen on, and if a church among us has fallen on hard times, we should feel these things. And more, more practically, how do we care about Zion? We ought to know about it, of course. We have the church walk. We're planning this weekend away, which I hope would be a, will be a wonderful instrument next year as we gather with our family of churches we have publications like the Presbyterian Network. And you know, this thing, what I'm saying here, this corporate identity, this caring about Zion, that's a strength of Presbyterianism, or at least it ought to be. And we need to avail ourselves of these things to care about the church, both corporately here and in other places as well. And these things, so that we might be able to pray a little bit more like Daniel, in this example we have in Daniel 9. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we find it somewhat anticlimactic even to come to you in prayer, knowing, Lord, that our prayers may never be quite as expansive, quite as absolute, quite as majestic, and indeed awe-inspiring as Daniel's great prayer. And Lord, we understand that perhaps you have not brought us to as great a depth of mourning for our sin and the sin of those around us and the sin of our fathers. You have not perhaps brought us as yet to a situation in which we are so fully cognizant, so fully aware of just how desolate Zion is in this land. But Lord, even still, we desire to be in such a place. We would desire, Lord, that you'd grant us a spirit of confession of our sin, that we would be fully aware of these things, 
That we not excuse ourselves or anyone else. We not exempt ourselves from responsibility from those around us, but own it. That Lord God in heaven, you would grant us that fervency and that zeal. That we would desire to prepare as Daniel did. With intentionality. Loading as with ammunition from the word of God. Preparing in fasting and and preparing in mourning. How we pray, Lord God, that you would grant to us, without bringing upon us great and terrible disasters, but Lord, through your word alone and through the power of your spirit and even our small trials, that you would enable us to have such a spirit of prayer, that we would pray like Daniel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.